Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with a code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome. Thanks for joining us on Keys for SLPs for this episode. Keys to Managing Caregiver Stress and Burnout. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. No relevant non-financial disclosures exist. Renee Garrett is a paid employee of a large health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia. She receives compensation for this presentation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. Renee's non-financial disclosure is that she is the current past president for the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia. And now, here's a little bit about our guest today. Renee Garrett is a native of Hampton Roads, Virginia. She graduated with her Bachelor of Science in Speech-Language Pathology in 2008 and her Master of Science in Education in 2010 from Old Dominion University. She has worked in outpatient and inpatient rehabilitation settings, assisted living, acute care hospitals, and day rehabilitation, serving teens, adults, and geriatric patients with dysphagia and a variety of communication and cognitive disorders. Renee is fees trained and privileged. She has supervised SLPs during their privileging process. Renee has a special interest in cognitive retraining post-TBI. She holds a certified injury specialist certification from the Brain Injury Association of America. She is active in educating families, friends, and patients with dysphagia, communication, and cognitive disorders. Renee has served the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia in the roles of secretary, vice president of public relations, vice president of membership, president-elect, president, and is currently the past president. She is also a trustee for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. Welcome, Renee. We are so happy to have you here on Keys for SLPs to discuss caregiver stress and burnout. This is such an important topic in the work of an SLP, but also for our listeners who hold the role of a caregiver. So before we dive in, can you tell us why caregiver stress is such an important topic for SLPs to discuss? Yes, I think it's important because we are in a role where we not only provide education for our patients, but also their caregivers, whether that's family, friends, neighbors, even staff. A lot of our patients at the hospital sometimes will have a private paid caregiver. And it's important for us to acknowledge 
that the information they receive is hard to process, just like grief is hard to process because there's a lot of emotions associated with it. And it may be a surprise, you know, not everyone is anticipating a 40 year old to have a stroke or for a child to be born with a developmental disability. So I think it's important for us to acknowledge that and provide resources for our patients and their caregivers so that they feel supported. Absolutely. And so important for us to recognize when we are providing information to patients and caregivers that their stress level could be so high that they're not processing all that information. So making sure that we're providing information, not only verbally, but you know, written communication as well, and repeating it as things start to calm down. So what are some of the typical emotions associated with caregiver stress? So when I started doing the research for this, I sort of thought about it from the perspective I had from partially caregiving for my dad many years ago. And I think for me, the, the biggest one back then was probably grief and just the frustration of not knowing what comes next, not knowing what to expect. So I think grief and frustration are probably two of the top ones. But also, some people just are embarrassed. They don't want other people to know. They're maybe more private some people just feel really helpless because they can't fix it. I know I'm a, I think SLPs by nature, most of us are fixers. We're, we're driven by trying to get to the solution and be able to have good outcomes for our patients. So that help feelings of helplessness is a really tough one, I think, for most of us. Anger, you know, there's a, a loss there when you are going to be a caregiver. You're looking at a disease process that maybe progressive over time, diseases like cancer or diseases like Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, those progressive neurological diseases. And I think, again, grief. Grief is such a big one because it doesn't come in order and it's all over the place. There's no set pattern of how you're going to feel from one day to the next and one hour to the next, honestly. I think social isolation is another big one because people do tend to withdraw Maybe they also, I had a, a patient many years ago who was a very active lady. And when she had her stroke, some of her friends really just withdrew from her because they didn't know how to be her friend anymore. She had pretty significant aphasia. And it was a, as a student, when I was working with her, it was a really, I had a hard time with that because I thought, wow, wh why would you do that? Why would you leave her like that and, and she's already socially isolated just from the effects of the aphasia on her and but I think often caregivers feel that same way because they don't maybe they don't have the support they need from their children or their other family members or their friends and it's easy to get isolated uh, guilt for also being able to be a normal person without a disease process that one's a tough one too because you no longer have the life you had before and there's guilt associated with that. And then of course, frustration, I think is a big one too, because you're so frustrated at everything. I, I can't even really pinpoint one thing. You're frustrated at the hospital stay. You're frustrated at the options for rehab or lack of options, depending on your insurance and your access to care. So I think those things are very common. And I think it's really important to figure out when that becomes something that's more headed towards burnout. Because when you're looking at stress, that's overwhelmed. You know, you're overwhelmed. But when you start looking at burnout, that's a little bit different. 
So how would you describe the difference between caregiver burnout and caregiver stress? So when it's stress, it's usually those feelings of, like I said, being overwhelmed, but sometimes difficulty concentrating, increased irritation, anger, feelings of helplessness and sadness. I think those are anyone who's ever had a stressful situation in their life. I think those are all fairly normal things. When you start to look at burnout, those things become more things like sleep disorders, use or abuse of substances, whether that's alcohol, prescription or non-prescription drugs, and then withdrawal from activities you once enjoyed. And then also poor self-care or health maintenance for yourself. So those are the things, the burnout signs that are a little bit, they sound a little bit more drastic, right? It's not just feeling overwhelmed. It's now this is affecting your day-to-day life. You're trying to cope and figure out ways that you can manage this, but it's a spiral. You know, you're spiraling into that withdrawal and maybe not taking care of yourself because you don't, it's like trying to find your way out of, out of a box. You can't even figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So working in the hospital as you do and working with caregivers for the period of time that they're helping their uh, loved one in the hospital, what do you do as an SLP when you see those signs of, of burnout? Well, there's a couple different routes. We have a pretty strong palliative care team that doesn't just talk about end of life. They're comprised of a nurse practitioner, a social worker, and then there's another um, nurse practitioner. And they all sort of have a different role. And one of the social workers will go in and talk to the caregivers about disease processes and options for care. And then also just provide that, you know, social support that they need and provide some resources for them. So we, we're lucky that we have that where I'm at in the hospital because most of the regular social workers on our team are care coordinators or case managers. So that's not really their role. Their role is to discharge plan and figure out, coordinate equipment and things like that, where they're going for their next level of care. Just going back a little bit, when we're looking at those signs of burnout, the other piece of that is looking at signs of clinical depression. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that because stress is one thing. And then having those signs of burnout is one thing. But then when you start to move towards clinical depression, and by no means am I saying that I'm a psychologist or psychiatrist that can definitively diagnose clinical depression, but some signs that you do want to be looking out for. These are things that coexist along with the signs of stress and burnout. They don't go away for more than a couple of weeks. So, you know, you might initially have that shock and that difficulty accepting what's happened. And then you move into now it's been a couple of weeks and maybe you're starting to have some some coping mechanisms in place and some ways to relieve stress and maybe more resources for you so that you can educate yourself about the condition. But if those signs coexist and don't go away after a couple of weeks, then we start looking at things like clinical depression, because that gets dangerous when the grief is so paralyzing that you're kind of frozen, you know, you're not able to move or task manage. Again, it's kind of like trying to find your way out of a box. It's like you can't even put two and two together to make that work. And then the other big one is suicidal ideation or even a suicidal attempt. And that, again, that's a bigger picture than just feeling overwhelmed and just feeling like you 
can't manage, that becomes a whole safety concern and then a place that you need to get help out of quickly so that nothing else bad happens. Especially if someone's having suicidal thoughts or ideation, if they're clinically depressed while their their loved one is being discharged and they're now having to go home and take care for them at, at home, you know, it's really important that hospital staff, SLPs in particular, because that's who we are, right, can recognize these signs and make sure that the person going home is going home to a safe situation. Absolutely. When I remember working in inpatient rehab, a lot of the times people would say when we go to team conference, well, why did the patient tell you that? Well, when I was in, you know, we treat, we tend to treat more in isolation, meaning we're with the patient one-on-one. And when you develop that rapport with your patient, they tend to tell you things that they may not tell other people about how their day is going or about how they're feeling. Because in the, you know, then the gym with the physical therapy and occupational therapy team members, they may not have that privacy and that intimacy to be able to share those thoughts because they're out in front of everybody else. And it's just a different treatment model, really, but it does afford us the ability to kind of track those emotions and be able to talk to our patients about how they're feeling and get them help if they need help. And certainly caregivers as well, because they come in the room for treatment sessions, or maybe they come for patient and family education. And that's the times when they will say, hey, this is how I'm feeling. I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know if I can take them home. And I remember telling many patients and their family, you know, I would rather someone say, I don't think I can take on this role of caregiver without support. Or even, I don't think I can take on this role of caregiver because what has happened and what I've seen at the acute care hospital I'm at is that sometimes people will take their parent home or their other loved one home and they don't properly care for them. And then they come back and they're very sick and they have wounds and they have all these other medical things. You know, I like to think that people are good and they aren't doing that intentionally because caregiving is such a hard role. And if you don't have a support and you don't know what to do, it's the other thing. I don't think most people would know how to inherently just take care of someone else. There's an education piece involved there on all these things. You know, we're talking peg tubes, we're talking go into a different mode of therapy, whether it's home health or outpatient or what have you, and trying to figure out how to manage all that at home. You know, maybe they have to work. Maybe they have other people in their household that they're caring for as well, like small children or something like that. So it's a multi-layered piece. And uh, gosh, it's, we could talk about it for probably a couple of hours. You working in your role, do you have pediatric patients at your hospital? No. Every now and then I'll get a late teen, early 20s patient, but usually it's mostly adults and geriatric patients. Okay. Okay. So you see the the caregivers in that sandwich generation where they're taking care of their parents as well as taking care of their own families, as well as their own work obligations. And just saying that all in a sentence is stressful, right? Living it <laughs> living it is is another factor. Well, and then also you've got people who, like I will get geriatric patients that are in their 90s to 100 and their children are in their 70s and mid-70s and maybe they have health conditions and can't take care of their parents. That's It's just a lot to consider and think about. 
maybe they have a diagnosis that they can't take care of their parent. Whether you know they might have just dementia or they might have a heart related condition or something like that. So there's again so many avenues we could go here. Absolutely. In your setting, do you see like, so how long have you, well, you've been in a similar type setting for a while, right? I've been in acute care for, it'll be nine years in May. Okay. So since you have started in acute care, have you seen the average, not necessarily the average age, but have you seen more people who are in their late nineties, you know, a hundred or older in acute care in the last nine years, have you seen more Do you see more people who are nearing 100 today than you did nine years ago? I would say it. no, it really varies. Our caseload fluctuates so much because we are in a rural area. So we serve an area that has lower socioeconomic status, but it's also an area that they have really developed in the past few years. And we get a lot of, we have a large three, four military bases here locally. So we have a large military population who is a little bit more transient, meaning they, you know, are moving in and out of the area. So not really, but it just depends on the day. And the oldest patient I've ever had was 108. (laughs) Wow. What was that person in for? Altered mental status. I think that's the blanket diagnosis most of the time, but I believe if I remember correctly, it was UTI related. And her daughter was her primary caregiver and she was almost 80. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. 108. Wow. Yeah. So it's hard to be a caregiver when you're older yourself, just physically for a lot of people. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I think if we look at the average, like where I'm at my hospital, when the patients come in and they're in their late 70s, early 80s, they're sometimes are doing very well. And then sometimes they're really have been chronically ill themselves. And it would be, it's a challenge for them to take care of themselves without assistance. So it's almost impossible for them to add on taking care of a parent who's very impaired, may have advanced stage dementia or have had multiple strokes in the past. So that's, it's, yeah, it's challenging. I think no matter the age, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about caregiver stress, caregiver burnout, clinical depression, a lot of the emotions that are involved. But then there are also the legal and financial concerns that even if you have the best case scenario in other matters, sometimes the the legal and financial concerns can be overwhelming. Right. So, yeah, the legal concerns in and of itself, just to kind of delve into that, just thinking about what happens if something happens to your loved one or to you. I've had a patient who I'd seen several times who was born and wound up having cerebral palsy and some associated lung disease. And he was also bilaterally deaf, but he could sign. And his father had been his primary caregiver for quite some time because his wife had passed away or his mother, the husband's wife had passed away many years ago. And his father got to the point where he was looking at the future because he was 78 and he had had shoulder surgery and he needed knee replacement. And his son was only 30. So he was, you know, trying to figure out what do we do if something happens to me, where is he going to go and who's going to take care of him? So I think, again, we don't, think about those things. I also had a patient a couple of years ago that had some chronic lung conditions and she came from a group home, 
but she was a fraternal twin and her parents had kept her brother who was also mentally retarded at home and put her in the group home. And so they had since passed and he had a caregiver that lived with him, but she was still in the group home. And so again, you know, thinking about that future arrangements of what happens to someone like that who may or may not have a caregiver, where are they going to live? What kind of legal documents do you need to have in place? And then also permission to access those documents. And that's, that's huge because if you don't have permission to access the documents and speak to medical professionals before end of life, that's a lot. So when we think about those legal documents, we're talking about general power of attorney, durable power of attorney, advanced directives, so things like living wills. And the differences between the general power of attorney is general power of attorney, you give someone else authority to act on your behalf, but this power ends if you're unable to make your own decisions. That's something like when my husband was deployed, I always had a general power of attorney to cover things like if we had anything financial or legal that came up, but then when he was back, we didn't have to, we didn't need that anymore. And the durable power of attorney, you name someone to act on your behalf for any legal task and it stays in place if you become unable to make your own decisions. That's big because either way, you need to have somebody in your corner who is going to act on your behalf. And this is something that we have been going through as a family because we're trying to get some things in place for family members who have a diagnosis that you know we know is going to be progressive in nature and then also geriatric. So they're both getting older and we need to have those things in place so that we know what to do so that we can help them if we need to help them. And then also, I think when we're looking at documentation, we think about birth certificate, you know, maybe some tax records. But what about things like your sources of income and assets, your pensions, your IRAs, your 401ks, insurance information, whether it's health insurance, life life insurance, long-term care, even home and car, because those are things that if someone is at end of life, obviously they would need to be canceled. Or in the case of life insurance, there may be a, a payout or something like that that may assist with the funeral costs because those are unbelievable. If you've never had to pay for a funeral, it is unbelievable. Then also tax returns, of course, investment income, If you have a will with an original signature, that needs to be, the location needs to be known because some people just put it, you know, in their house and then other people have things like safety deposit boxes and maybe they have an attorney that has all those documents that are the legal documents in place, but also property taxes, mortgages, other debts, car titles, credit card numbers. Accounts at the bank, those numbers, location of safety deposit boxes and keys. I mean, it is just overwhelming when you start thinking about all of those things that need to be in place so that your loved ones who are left behind can not only help you during your life, but also at the end of life. One of the other things that is really concerning is the prevalence of fraud and financial scams. This has been something that's, I think, it's been pretty well publicized in the media about geriatric patients and older adults falling victim to some of these fraud and financial scams. 
And so one of the big common ones that scammers will do is they'll call the victim and tell them that they've won a prize. And usually it's something like a large sum of cash. Maybe it's associated with something well-known like Publishers Clearinghouse, but it's not really Publishers Clearinghouse. They just use that term to lure people in. And one of the ways that they do that is requesting the victim either wire them money or write them a check and send it via Western Union or through another financial transmission agency. And as you know, anything like that, a fraud or a financial scam can really result in life savings being lost. Or now that financial piece that you had in place to take care of your loved one is gone. So again, just so, so many things that I don't think we are prepared for or really delve into unless we've been put in a situation where we're a caregiver. I have a a person now who's a friend of mine. And the way that I met her was when I was a student at a local children's hospital. Her son was a patient of mine back then. Our paths have continued to cross locally. And she's actually someone who is a relative of a neighbor of mine. So it's kind of funny because I go several years and not see them at all. And then we'll be at an event like a wedding and there they are. And I'm like, wait a second. But so one of the things that recently happened was her son has pretty significant autism. And so they know that they will be caring for him at least until they're no longer around. And they had to go through the courts to get, um, I forget what it's called. It's not custody, but to be his, his not caregiver, his legal guardian. So he, he's at the age where they had to go to court to be his legal guardian. In addition to being his biological parents, they have to do that because if they don't, then he, if something happened and say he was in the hospital and they couldn't get a hold of him, then there's some legal issues there. So they they wanted to make sure they had that piece in place because if something happens to either of them, they need to know he's going to be taken care of and they have a plan for that. And that wasn't really something with me not being a pediatric-based therapist or school-age-based therapist. I had never really thought about that. But they had to apply to be his legal guardian, even though her, his, they are his parents, because they have to be able to make his medical and financial decisions for him. I was surprised when my own children turned 18, how little or, or how really parental rights medically are removed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest pieces for that is giving permission in advance for your doctor or lawyer to talk with your caregiver. Again, that's something that we've been working on as a family because it is crucial for some, really for most diagnosis, if you're talking about potential for end of life. But then we also have to look at those patients that I don't necessarily treat, but they're definitely part of the SLP world. Um, you know, our patients with autism and our patients with mental retardation and other diagnosis that, you know, may be something that they're not going to ever be able to live independently or care give for themselves or make those legal and financial decisions. So, again, I think this is just a huge topic that really needs more attention. Now, if someone has not applied for general power of attorney and someone gets like in a car accident and is no longer able to make decisions for themselves, 
either temporarily or permanently, and they haven't filed any of the paperwork, what are the caregiver's options? Well, I know in our state, your spouse would be your caregiver if they're still alive. If for some reason they're incapacitated or maybe not alive anymore, it would fall to the next, what they call the next of kin. And I think that's where it gets a little tricky because I know for us, we've had next of kin be a niece or nephew that was named 25 years ago that maybe the patient hasn't even seen or had contact with and it happens. Or you have six children and you didn't name any of them and there's no spouse, and now you have six children that are fighting over what happens next. So, yeah, that's a, a good reason to think about those documents and having that in place, because I know, like, for me, having two children, one is married, one is not. So, yeah, if something happened to my son, who is not married, I think his father and I would be considered next of kin, but if he's, you know, awake and alert, he would have to make his own decisions. So it, it's just there's so many legal things that we don't really know about. And I think that throws a whole other wrench into what we're trying to do to just be good SLPs and support caregivers because the legal and financial part is so broad. And and so stressful. Yes, so, very. Yeah. Even just, as we said before, taking any one of these things, but you know, if all of a sudden you have a family member who's ill and in discovering and going through their papers, then you discover there was a fraud, just trying to rectify a identity theft, even if there weren't any medical issues is very difficult. And some of these caregivers have just one thing after the next. And then, as you said, the family members, maybe not seeing eye to eye with multiple family members, just in, do you know, in your state, if there were six children, would next of kin be the oldest child if, if it wasn't designated, like legally, is it? I believe so. But I think if they if someone here wanted to dispute that they could, they could go as far as taking legal action. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And these are not things that anyone really wants to think about in, in healthy, happy times, is it? Right. Well, and I, you know, I remember there were years ago, my in-laws were kind of joking about my father-in-law's sister who had picked out and paid for her plot at the cemetery. And they kind of joked about that. And they said, oh, she's even planning that. And I thought, well, you know what? I finally said at one point, that's actually a gift. That's a gift to her son, because I mean, he doesn't have to make any of those decisions because she said, this is what I want. And that's, I think that's a really good thing to do. And I, I guess my perspective is different now because before I think we all thought, oh my gosh, here we go. This is kind of morbid, but at the same time, it's life and it's reality. And having that peace in place when you're trying to grieve and then also trying to handle legal and financial things that you're not prepared to handle, or like in the case of when my father passed away, I didn't even know all the things. There's so many things that you have to file and so many things that you have to look up and go to the courthouse and pay for the funeral. It's so overwhelming. So I think, you know, the, when we're thinking about end of life planning, yeah, I don't think most of us want to think about that, but it is reality, especially for some of our geriatric patients or for those patients who we know have a poor prognosis. 
And so having those pieces in place and naming a healthcare proxy is, is so crucial. Absolutely. As far as naming a healthcare proxy for a, a healthy person who doesn't have any underlying conditions, does that have to be done through an attorney? Do you know, or, or can it, is there like, can you go online, get a form and fill it out? Yeah, I think it's, I don't know if that's the same as getting an advanced medical directive. I know at our hospital, they can print the paper out. And as long as someone's there to witness that you've signed it, it's okay. But as far as healthcare proxy, I think that falls under more like the durable power of attorney or the general power of attorney. So that needs to be, I think that's more of a legal document. Okay. I'm thinking there might be a uh, interprofessional podcast in the future with an attorney talking about some of these issues, because as we go through it, it, it is very helpful to know. Right. And I think too, that's probably, if I had to guess, that's probably something that varies from state to state, because of course, our our laws and regulations, even for our own state to state, without the interstate compact licensure, each state has their own kind of code of not ethics, but our code of what we're allowed to do. And just as as an example, I know in Virginia, our fees regulations are a little different from some other states. And one of those things being that we can't do things like decongestant or nasal spray that's numbing or throat spray that's numbing because it's considered a pharmacological product and we're not pharmacists, so we're not allowed to administer that. And that's different from some other states. Lots of ways to go with legal ideas. That's true. All right. So what are some resources that you would suggest for end of life planning? A lot of the decisions that need to be made, you can go to an attorney and go through those legal documents, have those those things in place. But I think when you're looking at just some ways to get help and some resources online, they do have the National Family Caregiver Support Program. That's a governmental program. There's an elder care locator as well and the Family Caregiver Alliance. And they those websites all have just varying topics about end-of-life planning and how to kind of delve through that. Department of Veterans Affairs also provides some services for veterans, but they have some stuff on their website about end-of-life planning, as well as the National Council on Aging. There are also some community support groups out there that, you know, can be disease-specific, but they also cover things like end-of-life planning and looking at what kind of documents you need, how do you plan a funeral, what are the things that you need to look out for when you're thinking about planning the funeral, because some people don't want an autopsy, some people do, What about organ donation? What about brain donation? What kind of services would your loved one want? What about a funeral home? What funeral home do you pick? How do you even know how to go about doing that? So some of those websites have some short lists that kind of guide you through the steps for that. And I think if you are doing pre-planning something like a funeral, then usually the funeral home will have resources about all those things as well. At least I know they did when my father passed away because we're looking at also, we were talking about documents. There's also social security. So if you're someone who receives a check from social security, you actually have to call them to stop checks if that's needed. 
Sometimes spouses are eligible to continue receiving the benefits, but you have to, you know, if you've ever had to call Social Security, it's not like you have a direct line to a human. You're put on hold and then you have to talk to someone who has to figure out who the person is you need to talk to. That person may be out of the office or they may be busy. You have to leave a message. It it can get really, again, you're already going through grief and stress and it can get really taxing. One big thing that I kind of learned when I was doing the research for this too that I had never thought about was sending a copy of the death certificate to all three major credit agencies. Again, preventing identity theft and also banks require a copy most of the time to access or close accounts. So, so many pieces, things that we don't think about that we really need to have those kind of guidelines, timelines of what we need to do when Mm-hmm. And knowing knowing to ask for those death certificates, I know in our own family that was something we didn't know about in, until a family member died, and we had to have multiple copies. I think someone even said get a dozen copies because so many pe- different people need them. And I don't recall though where does where did you get the death certificate from? I know at the hospital there's an official pronouncement of death that must happen, and there's documents the physician has to sign, and you get it from the department or you don't get it directly from the physician, but usually say if I'm in the step down unit, the nurse will have that. And I think it's something that goes down to the morgue with the patient that's now deceased. And then if it's something in the case of hospice, then you would get it from the the hospice agency. And again, yeah, you need a ton of copies because you have to have the official pronouncement of death in order to go to the courthouse and file for the death certificate. So that the pronouncement of death comes from the hospital and the, the death certificate comes from the courthouse. At least here in this state, yes. Okay. And again, okay. I imagine that that's probably variable. I think that's probably in most states, that's the way it is, but I'm sure there's always an exception to the rule. And one of the things with Virginia is we are a commonwealth. We're not considered, we don't call ourselves a state. I mean, it's a state, but it's the commonwealth of Virginia. So the laws are a little bit different in the way that they're structured. So I think, again, that's probably something that varies depending on your locale. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly is not a pleasant topic, but just having this conversation and talking about it demonstrates how important it is to, if possible, given time constraints and, and all the other things that we deal with in life. But if it's possible to prepare some of these documents ahead of time, of course, not the death certificate, but the power of attorney and, you know, the will, etc., health proxy, it just does make it a lot easier in the time of stress, in the time of crisis. So, right. Well, and I think it's nice to know, too, that there are resources that are out there that can help you. Because as funny as this sounds, one of the places that I think has so many, not only do they do a lot of research and they do have a large presence as far as lobbying goes for legislation and for changes, AARP. And, you know, it's kind of a joke, AARP for old people or whatever. It's really not. And if you go on their website, they have a ton of stuff about caregiving, end of life planning, legal documents, how to avoid caregiving stress, how to avoid financial scams, that kind of thing. And it's just really eye-opening when you look at it because they partnered with one of the governmental agencies, and I'm trying to figure out the name of that so I don't say this incorrectly, the National 
Association for Caregivers. They partnered with them and they've done a lot of work on looking at the statistics, looking at cost, and they even break down who are today's caregivers as far as gender goes, as far as age goes, how this impacts the person's ability to work, what kind of financial impacts has it had on them? Because that's another piece that, you know, we're thinking about finances of the person who is sick, but what about finances of the caregiver if they are unable to work or they have to miss work because they're caregiving? What if they're not able to take time off work? What if their Family Medical Leave Act benefits are denied or they get approved, but they don't have a benefit financially? Maybe they're not getting paid while they're caregiving. So, any and all of those pieces are so important to know about because I think for the average person, if we find ourselves without an income, whether it's the primary person, the primary person's wages or secondary wages, it's still, that's really scary to think about. You no longer have this income and you're dependent upon that. Absolutely. Well, thank you for discussing that with us. I know it's not, you know, as we said, it's it's a serious topic and, and not one that we take lightly. Sometimes we, we get the opportunity to talk about fun things on this podcast, and this is not exactly a fun thing, but nevertheless, it's very, very important and good to discuss. So thank you for doing all the research. And are there any other resources that you would, you think that would help SLPs to share with family members? I think knowing about things like respite care and the availability of that, there's some adult daycare programs too, like the PACE program, which is the program of all-inclusive care for the elderly. That's not available in every state, but the nice thing about that is it provides not only therapy services, but it also covers medical, social services, and long-term care costs. And again, the rules are different per state and the rules are different maybe even by diagnosis. But it's that's a really important program. And I think we have two locally. So that's not very much because there's about seven cities on this side of the bay for us. And that's 1.8 million people. So that's not a lot of programs for people. One of the other things, like I mentioned, I think earlier, community groups, the local agencies on aging, we have that here. And I think most places do their usually community driven by the city and they do some community outreach. Of course, with COVID, some of that has stopped, but the local agencies on aging will even provide things like pill organizers. They have some other resources that are free or federally funded that are accessible. Also things like support groups, you know, there's a lot of local hospitals and medical centers and most, even not just larger cities, but just in general that, have support groups for things like stroke, whether it's stroke caregiving or stroke survivor groups. Same for diagnosis like cancer, ALS, grief. And I think those most of the time you can find that on your local health center's website. And we mentioned the governmental agencies, but then also community support groups that are disease or diagnosis specific. We I just mentioned a few of them, but I know there's a lot more because they're diagnosis like multiple sclerosis and muscular dystrophy, things like that, that have some pretty broad reaching agencies and 
not only do they do lobbying work and things like that, but they also provide support for caregivers that's disease and diagnosis specific. So that's a really, I think, important thing. I listed Alzheimer's Foundation too, the Cancer Experience Registry, Brain Injury Association of America, and then also organizations like Autism Speaks. So I think there's there's a lot out there for, for us to be able to dive into and, and get more information about. It's just kind of knowing, thinking about it's easier to find than we may be thinking about if we haven't had to look it up, if that makes sense. And then also things like the National Alliance for Caregiving, they do some reviews in association with AARP, but also some independent reviews of what it's like to be a caregiver. And then when you're looking at paying for care, the National Institute on Aging, which is NIH.gov, they have quite a bit of resources as well. Again, back to financial, it's not just the, the person who's the patient or looking at the financial pieces, but it, it's often the caregiver and how do we pay for the care? Not even like missing work. That's part of it too. But how do you pay for care? What if the person doesn't have a long-term care policy or what if they don't have solid medical policy at all or health insurance policy. So that's that's a good resource to look up and be able to navigate how to pay for care. And then care options kind of changed with COVID-19 too. I know that put more pressure or different pressure on caregivers to think that, especially during the initial phases of the pandemic, when people couldn't see people in long-term care facilities, It's different if your loved one was already in a long-term care facilities, but the thought of sending someone with a new diagnosis to a long-term care facility uh, when they weren't going to be able to see them, again, added more stress for caregivers and just complicated the process. What other stresses did you see during the, not, I mean, we're, we're still, I guess we're entering an endemic, right? But what did you see during the height of the pandemic? And and what do you see now as added stress to caregivers because of COVID-19? Well, throughout the pandemic from the beginning, even up until just a few weeks ago, I know our health system had, for a while, we had no visitors at all when the numbers were really high. Then it's it's varied so much because at the beginning, we had no visitors. Then they relaxed the visitor policy later 2020, and COVID patients were not allowed to have visitors, but regular other diagnosis patients could have one. This last wave that we had when the numbers were really, really high back the early part of this year, they went to more restrictive policies. Again, no visitors for COVID patients, and then it was one for other diagnosis, and then it went to certain times of the day. They could only be there from you know, a couple hours in the morning and then a couple hours in the afternoon. Then they relaxed that and it was from eight until I think like eight o'clock at night. And now we're back to in our health system, the COVID patients can have visitors and pretty much anybody else. But a neighboring health system has still has a restrictive policy. And so they only allow two visitors per patient and you can't swap so it has to be the same two for the entirety of the stay. So that that's it's really hard because you can't, you know, you can't be effective if you're not present, or at least how that's how it feels. And so I think people started using a lot of things like FaceTime and calling the nurses a lot more, which 
can be stressful when we're already short staffed and it's hard to be in this COVID room where you're in all your PPE and you can't take your phone in there. So the nurses would have headsets on and things like that. So taking a phone call over a headset while you're trying to deal with care for a patient who's very impaired is a challenge for the staff. And then it's also a challenge for the caregivers at home who can't be there. You know, that fear of the unknown, I think for most of us is that's a pretty scary thing. And if you don't, you're not able to physically see the patient and put your eyes on them and see that they're getting better or see that they're making progress. That's an incredible amount of guilt, again, humiliation, frustration, all those things that we think about, maybe even some anger. I, I, I imagine if that had been me, I would have been pretty dang angry <laughs> that I couldn't be there to physically see what was going on and know how to provide caregiving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very stressful on top of everything else that they're going through. Right. And also, you know, if it is a patient with COVID, I think people might some people might be a little less afraid now, but I know during the initial few waves of this, people were terrified. I mean, they were terrified to come to the hospital anyway, but they certainly were terrified to go in patients' rooms who had COVID. That's a lot just to process mentally. And then to be told you can't go, oh, that's a whole that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. And as you said, um, the staff was so overworked and understaffed. So to be trying to navigate this from afar, and it, it was just very complicated. Well, hopefully we're seeing things take a turn for the best with COVID. And there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. Yeah, I agree. And also, if you were, we ha- this is one I had, I just thought of this just popped in my head. We had a few patients who had come here on vacation or because we live near a pretty popular beach. Well, two really popular beaches between Virginia and North Carolina. But also, even if they didn't come for vacation, there were a few people that when restrictions kind of lifted the first initial time and the, maybe the second after the second big wave, they came to visit their family and got sick. And it wasn't necessarily just COVID. Some of them were, but they were here out of state and had a stroke or got diagnosed with a devastating diagnosis and they weren't even in their own home environment. And it was unclear if they were going to be able to go back to that home environment. So again, as a caregiver, you're so excited. Your family's coming to visit you. And then here we are, they're sick and they're out of state. And what do you even do? You know, how do you even navigate that? And that's why that's so, those legal pieces are so important to have those in place. Mm -hmm. That's true. You know, you take any one of these stressors by by itself, it would be stressful. But for caregivers during COVID-19 and before and after, it's really one stress on top of the next. So it's so important that they remember self-care and take care of themselves during this time and ask for help if needed. So I know you've been a caregiver. What helped you alleviate some of the stress? Yeah, I was 25 when my dad had his first two strokes. Oh, man. I think for me, I know back then when I had young children at home and uh, military spouse, a lot of it was trying to make sure that I got outside and, and did like, even if it was just something like a walk around the block, take the dog for a walk. I know that sounds so basic, but being out in the fresh air and being able to clear your mind a little bit 
having some ability to exercise and move around. You know, we know that exercise is proven to be a stress reliever and it doesn't necessarily have to be vigorous. You don't have to go run a marathon tomorrow unless that's your thing. But you can do something as simple as that. I've always been a big music lover, too. And again, it sounds so silly, but sometimes those little things that we enjoy take us away from the moment and distract us from how overwhelmed we're feeling. And I think for me, two of those were probably two of the, the things. And then being able to talk to someone else who had been in a similar position. I had a friend whose grandfather had had a stroke, was able to kind of share some of the things because that was pre me being an SLP and community education. And I say this a lot, but community education is so lacking for diagnosis like stroke. And it's one of those things that we don't really understand or know how long reaching that can be and how overwhelming that can be for the patient, but also for the caregiver, because it's usually unexpected. And it's usually a lot to deal with, even if the the person that's um, the stroke survivor doesn't have a lot of residual deficits, it's still some navigation of care that you weren't expecting to do, which can be a little bit stressful. So finding those things that you enjoy or something that you've always enjoyed and just continuing to do that, even if it's in a short time frame and short duration, I think is just really helpful. Making sure you eat, making sure you sleep. <laughs> yeah. They're two big ones. Again, they sound basic, but very important. We've all seen those caregivers who suddenly they lose 20 pounds and they didn't need to lose 20 pounds and they're not eating and it's hard to have the energy to take care of someone. But when you're going through grief, it's very hard to eat sometimes for some people as well. So it's not straightforward always, but trying to eat. And I like how you pointed out, you know, a lot of times someone who's caregiving says they don't have time to exercise because they don't, they don't have an hour to go to the gym, but they do have maybe five or 10 minutes to get outside and get a little bit of exercise just to get some of the mental benefits of exercise, even if you're not getting strenuous physical benefits. I had a patient years ago who, when we talk about out of state, he was here from the West Coast. He had come on vacation with his brother. So his wife had to, he, he had a fall and wound up having a brain bleed and his wife had to fly out here to help take care of him. And what she always said was, some days I just have to leave the inpatient rehab place because she was staying in one of our caregiver suites that we had, which was much more economical for them than trying to stay in a hotel for a long term. He was in the hospital with us for about two months. And I remember her saying, sometimes I just have to leave and I'm not going to feel guilty about it because I need to go and be able to eat a solid meal and maybe read a book and not think about this and how hard this is. And sometimes people kind of looked at her like, huh, but I always thought that's really brave and that's really important because if you're able to identify something as simple as going to get a solid meal and being able to just get that release for just a few minutes or just an hour is is just important because self-care, as we know, even as SLPs during a pandemic, we're not taking care of ourselves. We're not going to be able to take care of our patients. It's just, it's a lot to process. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Renee. We really, really appreciate you sharing your insight and I do know that you have a webinar coming up. So can you take a few minutes and tell everyone about the webinar? So I'm going to be doing a webinar on the caregiver stress and burnout and just kind of delving deeper into these financial nuances and legal 
things and also adding in more resources and ways that we can support caregivers and ways that those people can get support through different agencies and looking at things like how to take care of themselves and respite care and and all that kind of stuff. So I'm looking forward to it. It'll be on April 6th on speechtherapypd.com and we'll be live so we can answer questions. So that'll be great. Yes, that will be great. And tell us, is that going to be one hour or two hours? It's two hours. Two hours. Okay. That about wraps it up for today. Is there anything else that you would like to add for today? No, I think we covered everything we planned to. And I just appreciate the opportunity to talk about this and bring more awareness to how difficult it can be to be a caregiver. And for some people, it's also a rewarding thing. So I don't want to dismiss that some people really do enjoy being a caregiver and really do a great job. We do have some patients who come in whose families really, really do a great job caring for them and keep them happy and keep them healthy. And and that's very important. So I want to acknowledge that those people do exist too. It's not all just about negative and being kind of downtrodden because this is a heavy heavy topic. (laughs) I know. I did feel like we were, it was a little heavy in there. That's really a good point to bring up because I've actually known a few people who were the primary caregivers for a loved one and then decided to go into nursing after that because it was so rewarding and they were able to be so helpful that they found a new profession. So It can be very rewarding and we all need good caregivers. But I think the reason we wanted to do this was to recognize that it is stressful too. And sometimes as that SLP who has that established rapport with the patient and the family caregiver that they can, it's good that they can provide resources and offer support. So it's good. Yeah, I think so too. All right. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you being here. and We look forward to seeing you on April 6th. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.